you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, here is what we're going to cover today. We're going to talk a little bit about some extreme Republican foreign policy ideas Big news out of Finland, uh, the president of Taiwan's visit to the U.S. and Latin America, some nuke negotiations, the VA, a blogger who got assassinated in Russia, and U.S. journalists who got arrested, Montenegro's new president, OPEC oil cuts, Jared Kushner, King Charles's inauguration, Mussolini's granddaughter. But first, <laughs> we got to just talk about uh, Trump getting arrested. Just perp walked. I, I, you know... I think we do. I think we do. I, I just watched it from France, which was yeah, kind of so like you're, a funny place. You're to watch abroad. It you're yeah. abroad right now. Is Trump all over the news? Are people like I spotting you as an American and asking you about it? So it, it's kind of interesting. In the UK, I was in the UK before this. Uh, like it was everywhere, right? Like you know, it was up in Scotland. The cab drivers want to talk about it. Um, here, it's a little more chill, maybe because they got their own stuff going on with like these. Strikes and protests. The protests, you know? yeah. Right. Uh, so definitely travel. It seemed to travel a little more intensely to to our special relationship up there. Yeah. No. Have you hit the streets? Have you have you burnt any uh, you know trash piles? I have France? not. I, there's like a general strike apparently on Thursday. So I'll see what happens there. Yeah. Don't take the train that day. So yeah. we're recording this at 1 p.m. Pacific time on April 4th, Tuesday. By the time this comes out tomorrow, I'm sure there'll be lots more information out there about the indictment, what happened behind the scenes, et cetera, et cetera, the protests. But one thing is clear, Ben, is that Trump is trying to push the narrative that his arrest is somehow uh, an indictment of America itself. He tweeted, the USA is now a third world nation, in all caps. Um, his idiot sons made the same point. But as we discussed a couple weeks ago with Crooked contributor Max Fisher, that is not the case. Uh, so maybe we give you a little data for everybody to help you push back on this nonsense. So this was a helpful story in Axios. Um, leaders who have left office since 2000 have been jailed or prosecuted in at least 78 countries. That is more than I expected, Ben. 78 is a lot. You see some dictatorships where they're not arresting anybody. Yeah. I, I Also, like, what does he mean by third world at this point? Because it's First of all, it's not the Cold War anymore, and it's just basically a racist comment yeah, that he's entirely. been making for, like, the last eight years. Um, but honestly, like, I think people looking at this from outside of America would think less of the United States and our legal system if Trump was allowed to just commit crime after crime after crime and not be prosecuted for it. Like, I, I don't want to use the third world terminology, but whatever term you want to use for a country that is kind of not evolves and not a a, a democracy, um, you would think that, that putting people above the law is more the problem than actually just enforcing the law. Yeah. Again, countries that have uh, prosecuted heads of state include France, Italy, Israel, Brazil, Taiwan, South Korea. The former president of Mexico is being investigated for corruption, but he hasn't been charged yet. Latin America has racked up the most prosecutions. Uh, apparently, every president of Peru, except one who served between 1985 and 2018, has been arrested or charged. So that's not great. But you're right. I mean, I think far more destabilizing 
are countries that don't demand accountability. And what turns you into a banana republic is uh, what Bibi Netanyahu is doing over in Israel, where he's trying to cut the judicial system, right? I mean- Totally. Like, I mean, there's like a North Korean vibe to some of the rhetoric from the Republican Party about Trump. You know, like he he is our chairman, like he is our leader. He is our champion. Uh, How could this possibly happen to him? Like, that's the stuff I think from other countries. It looks weird. Like, I, I honestly, having traveled a lot, I'm traveling now. I don't think people in other countries are looking at this and thinking, well, it's very strange that Donald Trump is being prosecuted. I think they've looked at this for a while and thought like, it's very strange that Donald Trump can get away with everything and that he has this kind of cultish following in the Republican Party. Like that is the accurate, like overwhelming majority of, of global opinion. So whenever they pivot to this talking point, it flies in the face of the reality that like Trump is the thing that people around the world look at and say, that's America in decline. <laughs> that's America yeah. becoming whatever you call it, a banana republic. Yeah. And, and second, like this is a bummer for us libs over here, but being prosecuted doesn't mean your career is over. Lula da Silva spent 580 days in jail and was just elected president again. And then in Italy, former prime minister uh, Silvio Berlusconi made a comeback after being convicted of tax fraud. But Ben, people shouldn't just take our word for it. We wanted to play a quick clip from an actual expert, a real historian uh, who's steeped in this stuff. President Trump is joining some of the most incredible people in history being arrested today. Um, Nelson Mandela was arrested, served time in prison. Jesus, Jesus was arrested and murdered by uh, the Roman government. There have been many people throughout history that have been arrested and persecuted by radical, corrupt governments. And it's beginning today in New York City. Um, And I just can't believe it's happening, but I'll always support him. He's done nothing wrong. That was Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene setting us straight. Yeah, like those radical leftists and the apartheid regime and that radical Pontius Pilate, you know. <laughs> yeah. uh, like, said yeah. Pontius Pilate was a Soros back judge. I didn't yeah, actually know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it is, it's just totally absurd. Like, she is clearly the thing that people around the world look at and think, like, these people have lost their fucking minds. Yes. But the, the other, I have to say, like, looking at the images, it, it it was actually more powerful than I thought it was. I, I actually have not been able to read all this breathless coverage of this stuff because it, it, it was sliding back into the like circa 2018 Trump's mood and a person familiar with his mood said he's, you know, defiant or something like that. But seeing him in this is not Nelson Mandela in the dock, right? This is like an overweight, aging criminal, like sitting in in the iconic place, right? With the lawyers there and the judge. I I did kind of reflect on the fact that like everything we talk about on this podcast, everything in American politics, in our own lives, right? Tommy, like we wouldn't be doing this podcast probably if somehow Donald Trump didn't come along, you know, like this man has been so central and, and, and there's something powerful about the fact that there's some accountability here, you know, and we yeah, can argue yeah. about whether or not this is the right case to lead with. But like, I personally felt pretty like I was surprised at how much I don't know how you felt like personally, but like you know, it's because as someone who like has as any listener to this podcast knows, like you know, things I'm proud of Cuba, Iran that this guy wrecked. Never mind my entire kind of life's work up to that point. He he, you know, tried to wreck at least. Never mind everything I believe in. Like there was something pretty powerful about the fact that this happened, and I have to give it to Bragg. You know, like like this guy didn't hesitate. You know, there's no like Hamlet in the Justice Department here. This guy's like, okay, like I, I've got enough to go. Like we're going to bring this guy in and arraign him. I, I kind of loved it actually. 
Yeah, there's been a lot of kind of um, approaches to thinking about talking about sort of uh, thematic approaches to dealing with Trump that you would see from the media or on Twitter over the past several years. And I think the one that annoyed me the most was the like, LOL, nothing matters take. Yeah. Because that was like, oh, you know, his racism doesn't matter. His corruption doesn't matter. Lying doesn't matter. And I think if we just accept all those things to be true, then the worst people in the world are just going to flourish in politics and no one else is going to be able to compete. So I agree with you. Like there is something cathartic and important and very meaningful to seeing him at least begin this process of accountability. Yeah. And that picture will be with him like, you know, the rest of history. Like and and, and look, I mean, what drives me crazy and like you guys have to engage just a lot more in PSA, but like the coverage, it's like. If he doesn't get indicted, he wins. And if he does, he somehow wins too. Like it, like everything is a win for him. Like, no, maybe actually like gravity, laws, like are catching up with this guy. And again, for our purposes, there is deep fear around the world, particularly <laughs> in this continent of Europe where I am, of his return, you know? Yeah. Um, and and, and we, we are not going to be out of the woods in terms of even having a, any hope of restoring American credibility until it's clear that this guy, whether it's at the ballot box or in the judicial system or both, is just not coming back. You know, until that day, like there's going to be this dark cloud over America. I mean, I'm in France now. Emmanuel Macron is in China, right? He's there as a hedge you know, against mm-hmm. against Donald Trump coming back. You know, these are huge geopolitical things that are tied to whatever happens to this guy. Yeah. So as long as we're talking about Trump, let's talk about a foreign policy reason why him not returning is so important. Um, This is just sort of like these extreme views that are bubbling up because of Trump. So the first, Ben, is a proposal to bomb Mexican cartels with or without the Mexican government's permission to stop the flow of fentanyl into the United States. Fentanyl, as listeners probably know, is this incredibly potent synthetic opioid. It's responsible for most overdose deaths in the United States. It's an absolute scourge. We have to get rid of it. But Trump used to muse about bombing Mexico in private back in the day. I remember uh, Mark Esper, as Secretary of Defense, kind of leaked that he would do this. But now Rolling Stone is reporting that Trump has asked advisors to draw up battle plans and military options for his second term. Um, But he's not alone here. Republican members of Congress, including Dan Crenshaw, uh, have put forward bills authorizing military force. Lindsey Graham is flirting with the idea of introducing an authorization for the use of military force to target cartels. And the point is basically they're trying to treat cartels and drug importation into the U.S. like terrorism and attack these people with or without support from the Mexican government. And it's becoming this mainstream idea. In fact, James Comer, the House Oversight Chairman, actually criticized Trump for not bombing Mexico during his first term. <laughs> so like, in case it needs to be said, there's a couple of reasons why this is not a good idea. One, the U.S. spent years trying to bomb drug dealers into submission in Afghanistan, and we failed miserably at it. Two, invading Mexico probably wouldn't go over very well in like Mexico. So Ben, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about how AMLO, the, the president of Mexico, blamed U.S. fentanyl deaths on this weird stuff. He talked about like a lack of hugs among Americans and the treatment of the elderly and all this weird shit. I suspect that this loose talk about like us invading his country maybe has made him sensitive about the subject uh, in general. 
But I also don't really get why he wouldn't want to be helpful to Biden when one party is threatening to invade his country uh, and the other isn't. But I I don't know. Any deep thoughts on uh, bombing cartels? Good idea. I just think like you're right to point out that this is not like an impossible thing. Like it's a thing that might happen (laughs) because if like this is where the Republican Party is going and Donald Trump is still like the front man of the Republican Party and he is like clearly capable of doing insane shit and wanted to do this by all reports, uh, you know, or at least mused about doing it. It's worth just pointing out the insanity of this beyond your point that it won't solve the problem at all. It's also the case that we, you know, the militarization of the war against the cartels hasn't worked uh, to, to begin with. It needs like, right. a more multifaceted approach here. The Mexican um, military has been targeting them for decades. Yeah. And, and it's been really, it's, this thing has been, you know, at, like it really kicked up in the Bush years, you know, like, you know, and, and it just hasn't hasn't solved this problem. Right. And it just shows you the Republicans aren't interested in solving this problem. I would also say, though, like just the discussion of it. Right. We're the biggest thing in American foreign policy right now is trying to get as many countries together around the basic idea that a big country shouldn't be able to invade its neighbor against international law. <laughs> <laughs> like in Ukraine, right? And so right. if like the Republican Party's platform is essentially we don't want to support Ukraine anymore. Like we're going to end support for the Ukrainians because that's where Trump is. That's where DeSantis is. But we do want to invade our neighbor just like Russia did. It just shows you the complete bankruptcy and insanity of, of this political party and its incapacity to like think responsibly about these things. Never mind that this would like, I mean, not only be illegal, but I can't imagine what the response would be across Latin America, around the world. Like, this is just an insane, batshit, crazy idea. But it's one that we're probably going to hear more about. Can you imagine being just sort of your average family in Mexico? You wake up, you make some pancakes for the kids, you flip open the paper, and it's like Trump wants to invade Mexico to take out cartels. Like, it, like it, it, it's it's insane. This is completely insane. Yeah. The Mexican-American War 2.0. I mean, yeah, uh, like, yeah. let's not do that again. Here, not ben, since Polk, you know. A, a quick aside. Here's one reason we might be seeing some extreme uh, foreign policy ideas coming out of the House GOP. The Intercept reported that the legislative aid handling military policy for Matt Gates is a convicted war criminal. He is a former Army National Guard sergeant who spent eight years in prison, wait for it, for shooting an Afghan civilian in the head during an interrogation. This guy is handling military policy and has a security clearance for uh, that case. Do you think that Gates found him or he found Gates? That's a good question. That's a good question. You do wonder, like, who's in these offices, um, all these, like, nut jobs? Because, like, these, would they have access to information? Do they have security clearances? Are they, like, able to get briefings on stuff? Like, this is... The most insane stuff. But again, like you can think that this is fringe, but you know, we've talked a lot about Eddie Gallagher, remember? Like the, the yes. war criminal that became like a hero on the yeah, right Navy and Seal. On, on Fox News. Yeah, the Navy SEAL who who was shooting dead bodies and the you know, allegations of, of of horrible stuff that came from his, you know, unit, his SEALs. Um it just shows you like how grotesque there is a gateway drug thing to this too, where like First, they were like into Gitmo, like they were defending that. That was so great. You know, then they're defending waterboarding. And now they literally have war criminals working for them. That's where this stuff leads, you know? Yeah. Crazy stuff. Okay, so let's turn to Finland because we don't get to talk about it enough. And there's some big updates. So the first is that uh, Sanna Marin 
the 37-year-old prime minister of Finland, lost her bid for re-election. So this was a three-way contest, and both the center-right National Coalition Party and the populist Finns Party narrowly beat her Social Democratic Party. When she was elected in 2019, Marin was the world's youngest sitting leader, but it seems like voters have blamed her for Finland's rising debt and inflation. She's also come under criticism for being young and fun and doing things like going to concerts and going to the occasional party, like literally everyone her age. Finland has a parliamentary system, so now the leader of the National Coalition Party will try to form a coalition government uh, and likely become prime minister, but that could take some time. And it's not clear whether this sort of center-right party will try to form a coalition with people, the populists to their right, or with the more progressive. So we'll see. Um, but the second big update is that Finland has officially joined the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, or NATO. This is a huge change for Finland. For decades, they did this delicate dance of maintaining relations with both the West and Russia. They share an 800-mile land border with Russia, so they have a, a vested interest in uh, not getting into a shooting war with the Russians. But the Russian invasion of Ukraine changed the calculus for Finland. Despite once blaming uh, NATO expansion for the invasion itself, the Russian response has been relatively muted. But of course, that could change if NATO starts moving in, I don't know, big weapon systems or something to Finland. Finland uh, itself has a capable and advanced military. This is, a, this is a boon for NATO. Sweden has also been trying to join NATO, but their application, <laughs> is that what it's called? Their process has been held up by Turkey, who is demanding that Sweden extradite members of a militant Kurdish political party to Turkey. So NATO now has 31 member states. They all agree to defend each other against an attack. It's a big deal. It's a big change. Ben, any thoughts on uh, Sonnenberg's defeat or this newly expanded, refurbished, some might say, NATO? Well, I mean, on Sonnenberg's defeat, uh, congratulations, Finland, on, on becoming really boring uh, again. Like, I hope you feel good about that. Um, yeah, but more seriously, in addition to losing a, a social democratic voice, which is, you know, we're on the social democratic team here on this podcast, there's something just kind of a little, I was thinking about this, a little depressing about the fact that, like, one of the hopeful trends out there in global politics, in democracies, was the emergence of, of these younger female social Democrats who were getting elected in a bunch of different places. And now we've seen Jacinda Ardern um, leave office, not defeated, but leave office, and, you know, in part because she was burned out, right? And, and and though she kind of pushed back a little bit against the idea that the, the burnout was due to the, the vitriol that had been directed her way from mm -hmm. anti-vaxxers and right-wingers, like that, that seemed to play a role. Uh, and yeah. then we talked uh, about Nicola Sturgeon, again, not, not a leader, but the leader of the Scottish Nationalist Party, yep. uh, you know, a little older than Jacinda Ardern and, and Sana Marin, but once but again, much, her like private- 50-something, right? Yeah, like not, not that much. In her private life, you know, I was when I was in Scotland, like, she was saying that, like, there were these rumors and, that, you know- that because she, she was having lesbian affairs with like French diplomats and she wasn't and like it, that clearly played a role there too. So and then Santa Marin, I, I don't know that the the you know party gate and all this stuff played a role in her defeat. It does seem like it was a lot to do with inflation and government spending and kind of demagoguing things that she probably didn't control. Right, like there's inflation yeah. everywhere, but it. I, I do worry about a, a trend like of these female leaders getting more shit than male counterparts. And, you know, I hope that she stays in politics. I hope that she continues to be like someone who is at the front of a trend where there are other people in their 30s and early 40s, women, progressives getting elected. On the NATO piece, um, look, anything that doubles 
Russia's land border with NATO is a really big deal. Yeah. Uh, and it, it shows you how profound the impact is of the war. We've talked about this, but essentially if Finland could go through all of the Cold War and then all of the post-Cold War period and 9-11, not in NATO, th- this is the thing that got them there. Very capable military. Like if, if Barack Obama was welcoming the Finnish prime minister, he'd say they punch above their weight. You know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Generally what he said for the Nordic countries, but it's Love true. Um, and the new Finnish government will have to make a decision about whether to house NATO troops uh, on their country. I do think stepping back, like for, for listeners making sense of all this stuff and all these pieces moving around the geopolitical board, I think what we can say a year into this war is that the West, the democracies of the world have kind of reconstituted themselves, reconsolidated their alliances, reinvested in NATO at the same time that, as we've talked about, like Russia, China, Iran, this other group of countries is deep in their ties. And this is like the, you know, I think the foremost signal of that, that essentially we have seen a kind of revitalization, but it has been limited within the borders of what we would have once called the free world, you know? Yeah. And this is kind of, this is drawing that boundary, literally. Like the the, the 800 miles that just became a, a border between NATO and Russia uh, with Finland's accession, you know, does say like, okay, the the line is drawn and, and we're revitalizing democratic institutions and values and common defense over here. But we know that the other team is doing that as well. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. 
Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. So speaking of the, the front lines of democracy, we should talk about Taiwan. Because Taiwan's president, uh, Tsai Ing-wen, is visiting the U.S. this week. She's stopping in California after visiting Guatemala and Belize. We should start with that, that Latin America piece of the trip. Because it comes shortly after Honduras broke off diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Taiwan's relationship with Honduras had dated back to the 1940s. It was sort of a, a Cold War anti-communist uh, relationship. But today, Honduras is deep in debt. And they reportedly demanded billions of dollars in assistance from the Taiwanese government before breaking off ties and establishing relations with China. Um, President Tsai's visit was designed to firm up relations with Guatemala and Belize and prevent more of Taiwan's 13 remaining diplomatic allies from cutting ties with them. Since 2017, Panama, El Salvador, the Dominican Republic, and Nicaragua have all cut ties with Taiwan. So this is a scary trend for them. Uh, President Tsai will meet with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library in California, near LA, actually. Uh, she met with Congressman Hakeem Jeffries last week in New York City. Basically, she flew to New York, flew to Latin America, then flew back through California. We'll go back to Taiwan. The Chinese government is very pissed off about the meeting with Kevin McCarthy and has warned McCarthy not to repeat uh, disastrous past mistakes, is their quote. Remember that they flipped out uh, about Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan in 2022. So, Ben, I would love to hear your thoughts on this visit to Belize and Guatemala and the value of, you know, sort of keeping together Taiwan 13 remaining diplomatic allies, even if we're talking about, in many cases, very small countries that you know couldn't do much to push back on China, as well as this planned meeting with Kevin McCarthy. I think you know when Pelosi went to Taiwan, I think you and I both were kind of like, you know, is the juice worth the squeeze here? I mean, this is creating so much angst. There was this like massive military response from the Chinese government for months and months and months afterwards. But the Chinese government telling Kevin McCarthy who to meet with in the United States seems like a whole other bridge further and pretty um, unprecedented and absurd to me. But I don't know. What do you think? On the on the visit to Central America, I mean, you know, if you go to Taiwan, like when I was there, like they, these allies and, the, you know, these friends that they have, the countries that have diplomatic relations are very important to them psychologically. Like, you know, you go into their foreign ministry, the flags are up on the wall, um, and it's basically Pacific Island countries and and some some countries in the Americas. As someone who's very sympathetic to Taiwan, I, I just don't think that this is going to last, you know, in, 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 in the sense that the Chinese have so many cards to play to pressure these countries to shift to yep. not having relations with Taiwan. I actually think if I was Taiwan, if I was advising the Taiwanese, I would focus more on can we build more connectivity with you know, European countries with other democracies around the world in different ways, right? Can we have, uh, you know, and, and yes, ideally you'd want some diplomatic re relationship, right? You'd want, like Lithuania uh, recently opened, uh, ta the Taiwanese opened an office in Lithuania. I think the Lithuanians are doing the same in Taiwan. Like, rather than kind of try to hang, this is a game China is going to win. 
because they just have a lot more cards to play. So rather than try to hang on to these small countries- and, The Marshall Islands, Palau. Yeah, exactly. And the price keeps going up for the Taiwanese. <laughs> like, yeah. As you said, like I would focus more on just can we, can we m- not make that the measure of our own success and the measure of whether or not we're isolated in the world? And can we have like- deeper, stronger, more multifaceted relationships with the world's democracies generally, whether or not they kind of formally recognize us in the same way that these countries have. With the McCarthy thing, like, I think it's interesting. I had thought McCarthy would go because I I didn't think he would settle for less than what Nancy Pelosi did. So it's clearly like the case that he was told probably by a mixture of the Biden White House and some other Republicans, uh, hey, like, this isn't worth you going and kind of you know setting off another massive Chinese military exercise. Can I say for the first time ever, a credit to him in my book, if he listened to that and thought, okay, well, this is a, like, now I'm in a more senior role. This is kind of the more prudent thing. Like, I don't know. Like he's no, not, he worried less about like looking less tough than Nancy Pelosi than doing something that uh, would create fewer problems. Yeah, I mean, I and I, so I was wrong. I thought I thought he would go for sure. Maybe he he still might. I mean, he's got another year and a half to That's go. True. But like you you had because you know Mike Pompeo went over there despite having been Secretary of State and and presumably knowing like how dangerous this was and and de- demanded that the U.S. recognize Taiwan's independence, which is like the one thing that could trigger a war, right? So t- it, there's a there, it's interesting. Whatever play was clearly the Taiwanese got together with the U.S. government in Congress and agreed on this kind of careful choreography where Tsai Ing-wen gets something, right? Like Taiwanese presidents don't usually transit the United States like this. And she's meeting the Republican Democratic leader. So it's not like she's losing face. She's doing this trip, um, but it's slightly less provocative to the Chinese. Now, what we'll have to see is what the Chinese reaction will be, because they'll do something. After Pelosi's visit, their military exercises were so, like they were firing missiles over Taiwan they were flying missiles into like Japanese waters. They were doing exercises that were basically meant to eliminate what's called the median line, the Taiwan Strait, the body of water that separates Taiwan from mainland China, the People's Republic of China. Like, you know, halfway through that, uh, that's, that body of water is usually, you know, it used to be like on this side is Taiwanese and this side is Chinese. The, the Chinese were just trying to like totally eliminate that with their exercises. So if they do another kind of massive military exercise with missiles, with ships and, and air assets that are aiming to kind of eliminate the idea that Taiwan has its own airspace and waters, you know, that's part of like their, their military strategy is of just eating away Taiwanese like sovereignty and kind of rehearsing invasions. So if they do that, well, that's a big deal. If they don't, it does show that maybe there's some de-escalation happening or maybe everybody's kind of taking it down a notch, you know, after, the, after the eventful year that we had. That would be good. Uh, speaking of situations that we all could love to see get taken down a notch, uh, Axios reported that the U.S., a European and Israeli diplomats are discussing what has been called a freeze-for-freeze approach to Iran's nuclear program. That basically means the West gives Iran some sanctions relief in exchange for Iran freezing parts of its nuclear program. Uh, This comes as Iran has made enormous progress towards getting a bomb since Trump pulled out of the Iran nuclear agreement in 2018. Part of that bomb making process involves enriching uranium. You use these centrifuges to enrich uranium. You need to get uranium to 90% purity to use it as a nuclear weapon. Uh, And currently, Iran has nearly 90 kilograms of 60% enriched uranium, which gets you a long way towards weapons-grade material. So Israel has reportedly said they will bomb Iranian nuclear sites 
if Iran enriches it past 60% as a big stockpile. Axios says that so far Iran is not into this freeze for freeze approach. Uh, but Ben, I mean, I, I guess I was surprised and excited to read this because it felt like diplomacy had just been off the table for a while. But I'm also a little bit confused about whether the Israelis are on board. And if so, how Netanyahu is so intensely opposed to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear deal from 2015, but in favor of this proposal, which is sort of similar in a lot of ways. Like, what, what did you make of this leak? This just is insane to me. I mean, it's the right thing. I'm glad that if this were to happen, it would be a good thing. It wouldn't, you know, do as much as the Iran nuclear deal to roll back Iran's program, but it would kind of stop the clock and like prevent this from being uh, like a flashpoint that could lead to war in the next few months or, or a couple of years. What's so crazy about this, Tommy, is that in 2013, the the pathway to the Iran nuclear deal was a freeze for freeze. <laughs> so mm-hmm. the, like the, this is like literally 10 right. years ago, we negotiated this, a freeze for freeze that was opening the doorway to this bigger deal. Netanyahu opposed that freeze for freeze at that time. So to me, the the, the fact that this is where we are in 2023 kind of highlights the insanity of just not being in this bigger deal in the first place. If, you know, if you're willing to do this kind of deal, why, why not just have the whole thing? Again, I would say, Obviously, Trump is the one to blame. The guy sitting in the Manhattan courtroom is the reason why this is happening. Like, like the only reason that, that these diplomats have to do this and that we're worried about this war is because this this idiot who knew nothing about what he was doing overruled his own advisors to pull out. I'm going to say, like, and again, like many good things happening in Biden foreign policy in Ukraine. We've talked about Africa. Like, mm-hmm. this is a huge indictment of them because. When they came back in office, like the deal was on the table. Like, I don't know that we don't know for sure that the Iranians would have accepted, but they didn't even really try out of the box to go back to the full nuclear deal. The freeze for freeze was something they could have done when they came in office, but they didn't want to touch this at the beginning. And and now this is where they are, you know. So I hope this happens. I, I'm skeptical. I think, you know, for the Iranians to do this, like, you know, they'd have to feel a lot of heat. Maybe this thing with the Chinese and the Saudis has got them in the mood to deal and to just kind of get some heat off their back. Um, so this would be good. But nobody looks good about the fact that this is where this all ended up, you know. Yeah. And I think you'll probably see some uh, activists, Moranian activists, very frustrated with the suggestion that the West would cut a deal with Iran at this time after all the protests and after the horrific treatment of women and the Masa Amini marches and this bizarre poisoning of schoolgirls that we still don't really totally understand. And I understand that. But there still is, I think... uh, um, a security argument for getting the nuclear issue off the table, <laughs> especially from a U.S. perspective. I well, I get that completely, but even even like I wouldn't expect any Iranians and activists to um, to feel good about any deal that that is with this government that they want to that that they see as having a legitimacy for good reasons. I would say that that government having a nuclear weapon is bad, you know, <laughs> and, and is more likely to entrench them than power. There could be an argument that, like, maybe we want a military conflict because that could be the thing that removes this government. I'm not so sure. I think, like, if there's bombing of Iranian nuclear facilities by the Israelis, maybe that just drives this government to, like, a more hardline place and they're trying to get nuclear weapons. So I don't think, it like, a freeze for freeze is somehow, yes, it does kind of, like, contribute to this idea that there is a legitimate government there making diplomatic agreements. 
But the, the thing that is going to bring down or, or dramatically change this government over time is the Iranian people demanding change, not, I don't think, Israel bombing nuclear facilities, right? And so for that reason, I think this is worth exploring. I, I, and I do want to say, like, you know, Rob Malley has taken a lot of heat, the, the envoy for the U.S., um, I think from those activists, like his his job is to try to solve this nuclear issue. And right. by, by the way, I don't blame Rob for what I was saying before. I think like Rob Malley wanted to, <laughs> was a, if it was up to Rob Malley, we probably would have been back in this agreement, you know, like at the beginning of the Biden administration. So, you know, not having a nuclear weapon, I think is good, not just for U.S. security. I think ultimately that that's better for the prospect of change because a nuclear, look at North Korea. Like right. a, a regime that has nuclear weapons can hang on uh, in a way that regimes that don't. I mean, not to sound like not the U.S. imposed regime change here. This is not Libya or Iraq either. I'm just saying I, I wouldn't equate this deal with something that's going to somehow solve their domestic problems. Yeah. And, and let's just talk about why it's important to avoid war at all costs. So a few weeks back, we did a special episode on the Iraq war. And we talked about the enormous cost of that war, both in terms of live loss, the reputation of the United States, and then just the dollar amount. And if you look even more holistically, if you combine all of the post 9-11 wars, the Brown University Cost of War Project estimates that the US government has spent over $8 trillion. A big and growing chunk of that spending is the Department of Veterans Affairs budget. So the VA budget was $45 billion in 2001, and more than $300 billion this year. That is in part because t- better technology, better medicine, meant there were fewer casualties in Iraq and Afghanistan, but you had much higher disability rates for Iraq and Afghanistan veterans because they could survive these horrific blasts and horrific wounds, but needed a lot of care afterwards. So here is what pissed me off. The Washington Post editorial board uh, wrote a piece where they called for changes in how the VA determines whether a veteran gets disability payments uh, to account for a shift from the old way they sort of uh, figured out your disability by deciding whether or not you could do manual labor jobs. And now that the Washington Post wants the VA to account for the fact that there's basically desk jobs in the world, right? And then they also called for the VA to means test disability payments so that high earner veterans don't get them. Here's how this editorial ends, Bed. Quote, but the moral responsibility Americans have to those who fought for the country is of diminished value if it does not align with the fiscal responsibility Americans have to keep their financial house safe and sound. Just quick reason why I think that's one of the dumbest things I've ever read. One, the Washington Post ran 27 editorials in favor of the Iraq war before the invasion. Uh, and the editorial board itself was a very loud, very vocal proponent of the war. Two, a former Washington Post reporter named Howie Kurtz, who's now at Fox and lost his mind, uh, said that between August 2002 until the invasion in March, there were approximately 140 front page pieces in the Post making the Bush administration's case for war. That detail came from a great Huffington Post story on this. And then, as the VFW noted, none of the 10 editorial board members of the Post have served in the military, so this wouldn't impact them at all. So, of course, they can opine on military affairs. They can talk about budgets, all this stuff if they want. But it's an insane to me that an editorial like this doesn't include any self-awareness about their role in supporting the war. It doesn't include any contrition about completely failing to anticipate the cost of war, right? Remember we talked about in the Iraq episode how the Bush administration said it would cost like 40 to 50 billion. They were, you know, a couple trillion off. And then just to say like, we should balance the budget on the back of veterans who have disabilities is like, honestly, I'm trying to figure out how this piece 
was written and became alive into the world. <laughs> how, how they could actually publish this. You flagged this for me. And and uh, I read the at first when you flagged it, I was like, oh, no, like who's, you know, who's going after these veterans benefits? And and I I would I assumed when you sent the clip that it was like a Washington Post news story, and I I read it, and I like I had the same reaction like I was, I had to read it a couple of times because, I, and I'm just now I'm like having to control my like emotion like, I I I was so angry <laughs> like like it's hard to explain again to people who might not follow this as closely as we do, no editorial board in the country, not the Wall Street Journal. Like these guys weren't just on board with the war in Iraq, the Washington Post. They could not have been more all in. So every hawkish. single chip they had, every shred of credibility they had pushed in the middle. They never held themselves accountable for it. After the war, it was always more troops, more troops. If you wanted to pull out any troops, you were you were a pussy. You were like anti-American. Yeah, you cut didn't and run. Care. You, you cut and run. These people, like which I, I know is surprising people because the Washington Post is generally thought of as you know, friendlier to Democrats. Like not on this issue. Like these people never, never owned up to their responsibility for the Iraq war. And they were responsible for the Iraq war. They were the the lead editorial page in the nation's capital, making the Bush administration's case more aggressively than the Bush administration at times. Truly, right? truly. And, and then the, the, these people, I agree with a lot of things they say about democracy, never wrestle with the fact that their support for democracy around the world was profoundly, profoundly undermined by the Iraq war by the, the policies they supported. And for them to have the gall, the nerve to, to advocate taking away veterans benefits because the only thing that they've also cared about as much as supporting war in Iraq is like a Simpson-Bowles, like overstated hyperbolic concern about death, de- deficit. Like I'm just, I can't even talk about it because it's it's so, divor- without getting angry, because it's so divorced from reality. They should, ha- I hope that the, the editorial board should have to go to military bases, should have to go to veterans communities. They should have to go to veterans affairs hospitals in this country yeah. and look those people in the eye and tell them that they supported sending them to Iraq for, for no reason. And now they support taking away their benefits. This and is so And now they're offensive. like, hey. I know you lost a leg, but what if you just, you know, sat at a desk all day? Would that would that bother you? You're oh, not disabled. Are you kidding me? How about this? Me? me, Mr. Washington Post editorial writer, like first I supported sending you to Iraq for, for, for false premises. And now I'm going to ask you to sacrifice. I asked you to sacrifice in Iraq and I'm going to have to ask you to sacrifice on the altar of Washington's fiscal discipline, like talking points. Give me a break. It's just Sorry. truly. Look, it's, just, tr- it's, like, it, it's truly outrageous. I, I couldn't believe it when I read it. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Are you like me and tracking the polls obsessively this election year? Well, Dan Pfeiffer's right there with you and he's taking them seriously, but not literally. Take an average of the polls. Don't forget about any one poll. And the thing that we try to tell everyone in every episode of this podcast is a poll that has Biden up to and a poll that has Biden down to, they all tell you the exact same thing, which is this is a very, very close race. The goal of this podcast is to help people understand polling and freak out about it just a little bit less. Explore the latest polls, what they actually mean, and whether or not it's time to hit the panic button. 
Tune into Polar Coaster with Dan Pfeiffer, Cricket's latest subscriber exclusive show. To get access, subscribe to our Friends of the Pod community only at cricket.com slash friends. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. Okay, let's talk about the other war that's happening right now, sort of a, a roundup of news out of Ukraine uh, and Russia. So first, just l- let's focus on Russia, Ben, because a couple weird stories. First, a pro-war Russian blogger was killed in an explosion in St. Petersburg, Russia on Sunday night. This guy's name is Vladlin Tartarsky. He's giving a public lecture in a cafe that was reportedly owned by uh, Yegevny Prigozhin, who's the Russian oligarch who controls the Wagner mercenary group. So Tatarsky was handed this small statue that was a likeness of him, apparently, from a woman in the audience shortly before the blast. So the assumption is this thing was like loaded up with explosives. It killed him. It injured dozens more. This guy was one of those right-wing bloggers we've talked about many times on the show. He had a big following on Telegram, this popular social media app in Russia. He was originally from eastern Ukraine, but became super pro-invasion and actually would criticize the Russian military for not being, uh, you know, militant enough. And so far, the Russians have blamed Ukraine and they blame supporters of anti-corruption activist Alexei Navalny for this attack. Uh, And they arrested a 26-year-old woman. The other thing that happened in Russia last week was the Russian intelligence service, the FSB, arrested a Wall Street Journal reporter named Evan Gershkovich uh, and accused him of spying. Now, I am confident without knowing Evan that these these charges are complete and total bullshit. And the Russians are just looking for a hostage to get some leverage. But the last time an American reporter was arrested and accused of espionage in Russia was in 1986. So it was the end of the Cold War when the Moscow bureau chief for U.S. News and World Report was thrown in prison for 13 days. I'm very worried that this current process uh, could stretch on much longer. Since the 70s, we should just note, the CIA has officially prohibited recruiting any U.S. news agency employee because they want to avoid exactly this sort of scenario, either uh, someone being rightly or, or wrongly accused of being a spy. But Ben, let's pause there because pretty big developments inside Russia for once and not just Ukraine. I would think that the longer this war goes on, the more you're going to see stuff blowing up or people getting killed in Russia. Again, whether it's some element of the Ukrainian services or whether it's some domestic resistance or oppositionists inside of Russia. And that's a big deal. Like that's going to bring, I mean, this was right in St. Petersburg, right? This is not yeah. like some small, you know, like out in the, the, the boondocks. Here. It's like a public event. Yeah. Public event. Like it goes and owns the place. Right. So like, that's the first thing I think this is, I'm more skeptical of the Navalny thing. Like that's yeah, it seems nothing. Weird. They they do like any corruption investigations that they put on YouTube. Yeah, they like make I, YouTubes. Yeah, like I I don't see that. That's the one thing that feels. And this is not me trying to defend them. It just felt kind of out of character for them. But I, I'd keep I'd watch this space because also if I'm Ukrainians, again I'm not saying they should be doing this. I'm saying it's human nature that if this war goes on two, three, four years and Ukrainian kids are getting stolen. Like they're going to start doing more of this, like yeah, whether we tell them to home. or not. 
Yeah, the they're going to want to bring it home to Russia. This is going to happen, um, no matter what the U.S. government is telling the Ukrainians. I just, and I'm not again, I'm not saying they should be doing it. I'm just saying that somebody in Ukraine, whether it's you know, even if it's not Zelensky ordering it, like there are people that are getting pissed in Ukraine and want to do this. Yeah, uh, the journalist thing is really troubling, and and to me, it just. It, it, like whether or not Western journalists can stay in Russia is going to be a, a growing question. If another one, because there's still a bunch of you know journalists there, if another person has taken these on clearly trumped up charges, then we have a real problem. And, and Evan has a real problem. I mean, like espionage charges. This is not like Brittany Griner with the uh, the the weed charge. Like the, if they prosecute him for this, they're not going to want to let him go unless there's like a very high level spy swap. Yeah, spy swap. So I'd, 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 I'd watch that space too. What the things have together is like Russia becoming like a darker place, like, you know, more controlled, more violent. Um, like Russia is changing too uh, through this war in, 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 in ways that are kind of scary, you know? Yeah. And, and with the, the, you know, arrest of a journalist, you never know if this is a plan coordinated from the top, if some more localized security official, you know, did something very stupid. Unfortunately, the result can kind of be the same, and this could take a very long time to negotiate his release. I saw. I think Tony Blinken is demanding his release already. Uh, the White House is leaning into this, but it, it's scary. Um, some other important updates, Ben. So the U.S. announced another $2.6 billion in military aid for Ukraine. The White House says that Russia is offering North Korea food in exchange for ammunition. Uh, a number of news outlets got their hands on this leak of secret files from a private Russian company that is providing cyber warfare and hacking services to the Russian government. If you want to read more about it, Google the Vulcan files. But it's interesting that they, you know, Russia has its own little like WikiLeaks now, uh, reportedly from a disgruntled Russian worker who was angry about the invasion of Ukraine. But, you know, who knows? There could be some intelligence service behind this. And then I saw that uh, there's a Nobel Peace Prize winning Russian journalist named Dmitry Muratov. And he is warning that Russian state propaganda is now laying the groundwork to make people believe that nu- using nuclear weapons is sort of not that big of a deal. That also coincides with this really interesting Washington Post story about the Russians digging massive numbers of deep trenches throughout Crimea and other parts of the occupied Ukrainian territories, which just shows that they're digging in for the long haul uh, for this war. Yeah. I mean, that last piece, like to me, I saw that and was found it quite alarming because you know, if they are conditioning their people for the normalization of the use of nuclear weapons, they're moving these nuclear weapons to Belarus. They're like hunkering down, like as if Crimea again is like they see it as a part of Russia. Yeah, the nuclear question is not like gone because they didn't use it in the first year. Um, so that that to me, of all all these th- like very things that are worrisome in varying degrees, like that got my attention. Like that's not a good thing. Yeah. The only thing that counts as good news is um, there was this report, I think it was in the Washington Post. There's this, like an apocryphal story about Vladimir Putin. He runs into one of his old high school teachers during a visit to Israel in 2005. And after their run in, this former teacher of his said that Putin showered her with gifts and bought her an apartment. And oh, isn't he such a great guy? It turns out, based on some newly leaked documents, that the apartment was actually paid for by Roman Abramovich a Russian oligarch uh, connected to Putin who used to own the Chelsea soccer team. So not at all surprising, but just sort of like perfectly illustrative uh, about how Putin operates and who he is. 
and Roman Abramovich, right? Like, yeah. like, cause you know, Putin's full of shit, but you know, we, we've all seen him like have pictures with like fake people. Remember the, the same five people dressed in different outfits. Like <laughs> yeah. one day they were teachers and the next day they were right. like, you know, scientists Sloppy or propaganda. something. And yeah. But the, the Roman Abramovich like, spent a lot of time trying to say like, oh, you know, I'm not that close to Putin anymore. You know, like that was way, way back in the day, you know, when I was in Russian politics in the early 2000s, like now if Roman Abramovich is like putting up teachers and, and paying for Putin's propaganda, like. That guy should be on the sanctions list. You know, he's yeah, on the right for place sure. there. Uh, a couple more quick things. So uh, Montenegro has a new president. So Yakov Militovic is 37 years old. He briefly served as Montenegro's economy minister and is the deputy head of the Europe Now movement. This is actually a huge change for Montenegro because the incumbent president, uh, Milo Dukanovic, has basically been president or prime minister since 1991 with a couple breaks here and there. He's basically in power the whole time. So as always, you know, these these Balkan politics are complicated. Uh, Militovic has pledged to bring Montenegro into the EU during his first term. But during the campaign, he received support from parties with links to Russia, Serbia and the Orthodox Church, which have been hostile to the EU and to NATO. Dukanovic led Montenegro when it gained independence from Serbia in 2006 and brought them into NATO in 2017, despite objections from the Russians. Uh, for those unfamiliar, Montenegro is just a tiny little country. It's like 600,000 people on the Adriatic Sea it's between Bosnia, Albania, Serbia, and Kosovo. But Ben, any thoughts on this this big change for a little country? I mean, like, I, I think the, the Balkan neighborhood's been a little unsteady, like, politically in, in recent years. And I mean, look, I, I think you know, having one person dominant for that long is not healthy. So, so transitions of power, I think, are important. I think the question is like, you you want to see the continued European orientation, um, and and so the hope is that like a, a different person also carries. If, if you see multiple leaders of different politics continuing to pursue integration with Europe and you know good relations with neighbors. That's a healthy sign of of a you know maturing democracy. Like if there's backsliding and, and like corruption and instability, like that you know that's the kind of trend that like we've seen in other Balkan countries like pull things backwards. So I think TBD is. I think you teed it up well. Like a, the the jury's out here. Um, transfer power like generally a good thing in democracies, but the question is like let's see where that goes. Yeah, let's see where that goes. Uh, quick little segment here called "We Know Whose Side You're On." Uh, the first piece of this is OPEC Plus, which is the cartel of oil producing countries led by Saudi Arabia. They uh, announced a cut in oil production, sending prices up about 5% over the weekend. Uh, second, Ben, we learned that our old buddy, Jared Kushner, former Trump aide slash son-in-law, he has a private equity fund that receives an investment of more than $200 million from the United Arab Emirates Sovereign Wealth Fund and a similarly sized investment from an entity linked to Qatar. So those funds from the UAE and Qatar come on top of a $2 billion investment into Kushner's uh, investment company, private equity company from Saudi Arabia that we've known about for a while. And then before that, Qatari-linked company bailed out Jared's property on Fifth Avenue that was deep in debt during the Trump administration. So for those keeping score at home, I think this OPEC production cut is mostly about just like maximizing profits and making money after a dip in energy prices. But it's a nice little side benefit for the Saudis to know that it hurts Joe Biden and it helps Russia bring in cash to fund their war. And we know these Gulf countries are pouring money into Jared Kushner's pocket, either for favors received in the past or for favors they hope to get in the future. So we know which uh, side you're on. You don't think they just 
are looking out at the whole world and thinking like the best person to put my money with is market genius Jared Kushner. Yeah, this guy's got the track record. He knows the lay of the land. He's going to 10x this. <laughs> Savvy for us. guy. I mean, I like, again, like, it bears repeating that essentially, if your interest, and this is the Saudi interest and the Emirati interest, right? If your interest in the world is autocracy succeeding and, and being democracy proof, fossil fuels uh, continuing to bring in the money, and the Trump family, I don't think there's anything that like the US foreign policy can do to make you like nice to us. Like again, like all the, the, the most of whom are on the payroll somehow of the Gulf, all the people, the analysts um, who think there's some mix of US policies, they're going to make like MBS join our team, like maybe need to take a look at what the actual interests of these families are that run these, these, these countries that, and their oil companies and their sovereign wealth funds. Yeah, I don't know if you saw this, but um, one of the big Saudi investment entities, it's called Sanabil Investments, released the list of direct investments into companies and also into private equity funds. And it's like a lot of the most annoying VCs in Silicon Valley, like Indreessen Horowitz, you know, like these VCs like yeah. Mark Indreessen who are out there like whining on Twitter all day long about Joe Biden and the SVB and the Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera. So, you know, it's just good to know who's funding these people. Just amoral guys, you know, like, and they're all guys. You're like, just like the most yeah. amoral VC type guys. The kind of guys who have like podcasts where they talk about like genocide being below their line. You know, uh -huh. like, yep. yeah. That's the kind of crew. Uh, so Ben, two more things. As our royal correspondent, I am eager to hear your views on President Biden's reported decision to skip the coronation of King Charles III. This is apparently in the news. I'm not sure why. Given that President Biden went to Queen Elizabeth's funeral last year, and no president has apparently ever attended the coronation of a British sovereign since 1776. But it seems likely we will get a round of kind of wither the US-UK special relationship stories, even if Biden sends a delegation that includes his wife, Dr. Jill Biden, the first lady. But your thoughts on this uh, snub? Yeah, I would have been pretty shocked if Joe Biden went to the coronation. Um, so uh, I don't think there's, I don't read much into it, except... Like you can feel how much like the press, whether it's in the UK or in the US or anywhere, wants to write the like Charles has diminished the monarchy story. You know, mm, like, that's true. like that to me is headline. Like anything that happens, you know, it's gonna be like, oh, you know, like uh Charles is not Elizabeth, you know, just this guy's got like a pretty high bar uh that he's not gonna be able to clear. So like if I'm Charles, I'm and I'm trying to think about it, like how to how to not like hold people have people hold me to the standard of like what they did for my mother they're doing for me because it's not going to happen and so you gotta you gotta set expectations here that's a really good point uh final story here's a headline from semaphore uh mussolini's granddaughter chugged wine at 11 a.m to protest health warnings on wine bottles so very uh fascist and their kids are very hot right now so this is a european parliament member alessandra mussolini she took a couple of slugs of wine straight from the bottle at a press conference to protest Ireland's plan to add health warnings to wine bottles. These warnings will just include basic information about diseases linked to alcohol. Seems like a good idea. Spain and Italy are apparently whining about this plan. Um, I personally support wine consumption at all hours. I hope you do too, since you're in France right now. But do we think this label is going to slow people down? I don't know. And did you know, Ben, that Alessandra Mussolini was an actress, that her aunt is Sophia Loren, and that she recorded a pop album that was only released in Japan. 
Thank you, Summer Four, for all this news. I didn't know any of that. Uh, that's like some that's some pretty good content. That's a pretty good like niche Summer Four has carved out there. Like, and I mean that sincerely. That's good stuff. I love that she just owns the name. You know, like it, it does kind of show you. I mean, like the Mussolini kind of not being in like the the worst dictator club thing has always been mm-hmm. kind of weird to me because if you read the history, like pretty bad guy, like a bad, oh, yeah. you know, like kind of like a like a, a front runner for Hitler, you know, like uh, testing the waters, you know. Um, so it's kind of weird. Like if there was a some woman named Hitler in German politics, like slugging beer at 11 a.m. in the morning, like that'd be pretty weird. <laughs> yeah, it wouldn't play um, well. Wouldn't play well. I, I don't, as someone who's in France drinking a lot of wine, um, have for uh, after this podcast recording uh, a Chateau Neuf de Pop. Uh, there you that go. I was able to pick up at ha- half the price this in the US. This was 25 euros. Do we still have huge tariffs on French imports of wine yes, in particular? Yes, we do. So Why do like we get this, rid of those? It's wine that is phenomenally expensive uh, in, in the US. It's like not like crazy here. So I will be indulging in that. Like, I don't know why. It's not like the label is like a, one of the smoking labels where they show you some like really awful, horrific yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. We're just talking about like, you know, hey, like, be careful. Like, you shouldn't drink if these things happen or, you know, you have these conditions, right? So I don't have a problem drinking at 11 o'clock, nor do I have a problem with the labels. And I, I, frankly, the Irish, like, it's not like that, you know, like they're they're not like abstaining from alcohol across right. the board either here. Like, they're just trying to like, you know, let people know what's up. Yeah, it's very strange. Um, By the way, so I, I've mentioned before, Hannah's younger sister, Melanie's boyfriend, Raphael, is from Strasbourg. Uh, and we went and visited him. We drove around Provence. We drove around Chateau Neuf de Pop, actually. And it's just really fun to say. So I highly recommend it. I just like it. saying it's it. Just, that's why. It's just fun. But you're right. Why, stuff over yeah. there costs like 15 bucks. It's much less. It's, like the it's best like, bottle you get. It's, yeah. Like the good stuff over here is like, it's just a lot less. And, and then the markup in an LA restaurant, forget it. You know? Oh my God. You're, yeah, paying, you're like, paying like 90 bucks for something you're picking up for, for 20 euro in a store here. Yeah, just sort of like house wine out of a out of a cask over in France. Um, yeah. Okay, that is it for us today. We don't have a guest because uh, we're doing different time zones. Everybody's busy. Leave us alone. But don't forget to follow us at Crooked Media on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. Now, we're still on TikTok, even though uh, the UK just fined them $16 million for allowing over a million kids under 13 to use TikTok back in 2020 in violation of its own rules. We'll see if they get banned over here in the US. But also, subscribe to Pod Save the World on YouTube for access to full episodes and other exclusive content. And uh, give us a review, please. It helps everyone find the show. You get like this background if you watch us on YouTube. You get this, like, yeah. uh, it's like kind of like, a, I mean, like an annex, like a closet to this yeah. room. So yeah. Ben's in a closet. I would, I would describe the pattern as a uh, sort of waiting room couch. Yeah, yeah but friend, with like a little French flair, you know. There's a little like French a, flair, yeah. It's like a pre-revolutionary vibe to it, you know. Yeah, that's nice. It's like very nice. I've been, I've been reading this book about, it's um, it's a biography of Voltaire. There's sort of like a famous 17th yeah. uh, French thinker in the 1700s. And um, man, French Catholics were uh, not nice to my Protestant people back in the day. Not, not, not a good time to be a Huguenots, yeah. Yeah, you don't want to be Huguenot. <laughs> We got fucked up. Um, all right. Well, it's like 11 o'clock where you are, 11.05 p.m. So Ben's um, working late hours for you people. So thank you for listening. Thanks, Ben, for joining. And uh, thanks, Donald Trump, for getting indicted. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for that. That made the day a little bit better. Excellent. Talk to you guys soon. 
Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. Our executive producers are me, Tommy Vitor, Ben Rhodes, and Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. Our associate producer is Ashley Mizuo. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick, Kyle Seglin, Charlotte Landis, and Vasilis Futopoulos are our sound engineers. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, and Milo Kim, who upload our episodes and videos to YouTube every week. And check out the Pod Save the World uh, YouTube account. Thanks to Saul Rubin for production support. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie, and we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews, but now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today.